The truth is, like, you never know when your research is going to be really important to people. And because of that, we have to think through a lot of our own kind of commitments and ethical obligations before we even get started. Hello, welcome to Zaklancho on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you've been listening for a while, uh, you've heard somebody mention in a bunch of different episodes named Erica Chenoweth. She was in the Varshini Prakash episode about the Sunrise Movement, in the Wayne Chung episode about direct action everywhere and animal rights movements, um, to name just two of them. But Erica Chenoweth is a professor at Harvard. She studies resistance movements, um, uh, both violent and nonviolent. She's particularly known for a book she wrote with Maria Stefan called Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. But she's written a bunch of books. She's gotten a new one coming. Her work has been definitional in this space. Um, she's shown, along with co-authors, that nonviolent movements tend to work about twice as often as violent movements. She's done a lot of work trying to understand why different movements work, why they don't, when they work, how they work, what they're targeting, what their component parts are. So she's not only somebody who studied it from the macro picture, but particularly in recent years, she's become somebody sought after to advise and consult and talk with the people inside these movements. So she also has a ground level view of them at a time when we're at a, a really remarkable moment in how many different forms of global resistance movements there are, both trying to change regimes or trying to change issues, um, how they work, how digital uh, methods have changed the way they work. So she can sort of op uh, offer both that very big picture view but is also seeing them at, with a ground-level lens as she talks to the people who are running a lot of the most interesting and exciting and important and moral movements of our age. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. Again, EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. But here's Erica Chenoweth. Erica Chenoweth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you co-authored the landmark study showing nonviolent resistance to be about twice as effective as violent resistance. Can, can you walk us through that and how you how you came to that finding? Sure. Uh, so this was a book that, uh, as you mentioned, I co-authored with Maria Steffen, uh, who is now the director of the Program on Nonviolent Action at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And what we did was we collected data on all of the mass movements that we could find from 1900 to 2006 around the world. Uh, the total uh, data set comprised 323 cases of uh, what we called maximalist campaigns, which are uh, mass mobilizations that were seeking either the overthrow of an incumbent leader uh, or the creation of an independent state through secession, kicking out a foreign colonial uh, intervention or colonial power and a foreign military intervention. What we found uh, when we looked at the full range of cases is that those uh, mobilizations where people were unarmed and relying uh, on nonviolent methods like strikes, boycotts, protests, go slows, any number of other uh, nonviolent techniques of non-cooperation were much more likely to succeed than those campaigns where uh, the mobilization was primarily violent or armed. Um, and we, in fact, found that the nonviolent mass movements outperformed the violent ones by about a two to one margin, about 50% of the nonviolent campaigns were succeeding, um, whereas only about 25% of the violent ones were. And when we say success, we mean actually a fairly strict yet narrow definition of success. So we looked at whether the campaigns either overthrew the incumbent regime or created a legal and de facto independent state within a year of the peak of mobilization and uh, that those campaigns had a direct impact on an outcome. So if it, there was a foreign intervention, for example, we wouldn't count that as a successful uh, movement. 
So just to get at that question real quick, I've, I've heard you say that under your framework, Gandhi's movement in India, which is one of the most famous cases of nonviolent resistance that I think people have in their heads, it doesn't actually count as a full success. What, why is exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. So so the reason why is that um, the peak of the mobilization of Gandhi's independence movement, we thought was really in the 30s and independence didn't come until the late 40s. Um, so by our kind of very strict criterion of um, finding a direct impact of mass mobilization on the outcome. Um, we felt that we couldn't do that because there's so many other external factors like, um, you know, World War II, um, the sort of collapse of the, the imperial system more broadly that could have led to Indian independence above and beyond uh, the movement. Now, both Maria and I, I think, would say that the Indian independence movement and Gandhi's role in it um, often does help us to understand more about the power of nonviolent resistance. Um, but we were trying to um, really apply st strict criterion uh, to our success rates, uh, particularly to stave off any um, concerns or skepticism that we were sort of overcounting successes of nonviolent resistance. So really what we found is that the, the campaigns were more likely to succeed outright than their armed counterparts, which um, also take longer to achieve their aims, something like three times longer uh, to achieve success for violent campaigns than for nonviolent campaigns. But the other thing is that um, in the aftermath of these movements, if you look at um, what happened to countries where significant changes happened due to either armed revolution or nonviolent resistance, those countries that um, use nonviolent resistance were much more likely to emerge as democracies and much less likely to relapse into civil war uh, within five to 10 years after the campaigns ended. Uh, so, you know, for those who are concerned about long-term egalitarian politics or kind of reducing the likelihood of deep polarization embedding itself in the society, nonviolent resistance is historically, at least during that time period, uh, shown to be more amenable to those outcomes. There's a lot I want to follow up on there, but but I want to do some for some further definitional work here. In in your work, you draw a distinction between nonviolent or civil resistance and passive or peaceful resistance, which I think is what people often think of when they hear nonviolent. So, what's the distinction there? And I guess a bigger question being, when we talk about nonviolent resistance here, what are we talking about? Yeah, great question. So, nonviolent resistance is a method of active conflict where people are um, confronting oppression or pr oppressive regimes by using unarmed techniques like strikes, boycotts, protests, go slows, um, other forms of economic, social, and political non-cooperation, and a variety of other kind of coordinated methods in order to achieve this outcome. They're doing it without threatening or causing physical harm to other people. You know, kind of iconic examples of this are like the Solidarity Movement in Poland, uh, the People Power Movement in the Philippines in the 80s, Certainly, the Tunisian Jasmine Revolution of 2010 to 11 is an example of this. And there are lots of examples around the world today, I think, that um, are soon going to be considered iconic um, examples of this. The Sudanese Revolution comes to mind, for example, as, as one of these cases. So we are talking about mass mobilization. We aren't talking about a single person kind of standing in front of a tank and saying, I'm not going to take up a weapon against this tank. Um, we're not talking about people committing to pacifism or the non-use of violence under any circumstances. We're talking about people who are actually fighting back against whatever system they're fighting against, but they're using techniques that are not violent. 
And one of the things that I will say is is that um, an easy misperception of this field is that nonviolence means not fighting back, or it means being passive or passively accepting some form of um, of violence against oneself. And that is not actually what we're talking about. We're talking about people taking um, their future into their own hands, but doing so without resorting to arms. I want to keep digging into to the components that make nonviolence more successful, but you just brought up the Sudanese movement, and I think that's both one people don't really know about, including I don't know that much about it, but also it's probably helpful to have some more concrete examples uh, on the page here before we go too deep into the theory. So do you want to tell a bit of that story and why you think that will end up being an iconic example? The Sudanese revolution is really an incredible example of the power of nonviolent resistance. On the one hand, uh, here is this regime that has been kind of notorious for its commission of war crimes in Darfur, has been a fairly stable, if not somewhat fragile, regime um, for the past few decades. You know, there was a a series of attempts, in fact, um, kind of on the heels of the Arab Spring, uh, to confront or challenge Bashir's government by different civil society groups and activists, both in 2011 and again in 2013, that were essentially brutally repressed at that time. But in the aftermath of those two kind of failed uprisings, uh, there were a lot of lessons learned by different civil society groups. Uh, and one of these uh, major groups called the Sudanese Professionals Association, or SPA, uh, began to engage in a wide variety of kind of community organizing projects to strengthen and develop um, the resilience of civil society. And alongside uh, different kind of women's organizations and youth groups, there was a broader-based coalition that had a much more enduring capacity when people rose up against Bashir uh, this past year. So Bashir returned to sort of familiar methods of trying to suppress the uprising using many different techniques of um, torture and and um, state terror. Um, but these were met with even greater degrees of mobilization by the population, escalating their demands uh, to his removal from power. And uh, what is common with mass nonviolent movements is that by maintaining that nonviolent discipline, more people from more diverse backgrounds are able, in fact, to participate actively in the movements. And Sudan is an example of this. Probably between 1% and 2% of the population ended up participating in this mass mobilization, which is a huge number of people, in fact, even though it sounds like a small number. And the military and security forces were divided in how to respond. And what we often see in these mass movements when they achieve these large numbers, um, reflecting a diverse population that cuts across barriers as it did in Sudan, is that security forces don't actually know how they should respond in light of their own future interests. So in this case, the security forces did split. Some of them aligned with Bashir and others decided that they thought Bashir's time had come to an end and that they needed to initiate a transition. During the transition itself, the protesters continue to sit in outside of the military headquarters, and there was an attempt to completely suppress them and drive them out. And 
even in that context, there were massive strikes that were called in the aftermath of that attempt to suppress and subdue the dissidents. And those strikes were highly successful in maintaining leverage during the transitional talks to make sure that the transitional council would be half military and half civilian which they are. And in the aftermath of that, of course, we've started to see the implementation of these new reforms, which are kind of the types of things you'd think were unthinkable in this society just a few years ago. For example, lots of different reforms around the role of women in society and the appointments of different women in key government positions um, like the Supreme Court. So I think it's still kind of in a fragile state and we don't know the future. But I think this case is one that really demonstrates the power of kind of concerted, resilient, and disciplined nonviolent action when there's a well-prepared and well-organized group that's committed to maintaining it. So something I really appreciate about the work you've done is that it it breaks these movements and what makes them successful into component parts. And so I want to walk through that part of your schema. You, you, you often talk about four key reasons that nonviolence is more effective than violent uh, protest, which is... Number one, the size and diversity of the movement. Number two is resilience. Number three is the flexibility of tactics. And and four, which often seems to be the key, is loyalty shifts. Can you walk us through those components a bit? So um, the first one, which kind of makes possible the others, <laughs> is a large-scale participation um, that is representative or of, of diverse segments of society. So what I mean by that is the no-brainer insight that the larger a movement is, the more likely it is to be able to wield political power. Nonviolent campaigns, though, are much more likely to get a large-scale following than armed campaigns, and they are more likely to maintain a diverse following than armed campaigns. The second point is that maintaining resilience in the face of repression seems to be really key. What I mean by that is that people are able to maintain their own plan and progress, uh, even when repression against them begins to escalate. Generally speaking, that means that they are able to maintain some degree of nonviolent discipline, even when the state tries to force them into using violence. The third point is that movements that succeed tend to use more than just protest. And, and this is a, a really important point, I think, in light in, of so many of the movements around the world right now that really focus on mass demonstrations and protests as the main form of, of resistance that they use. Movements that rely solely on protests tend to be less successful than movements that combine protests and, and street demonstrations with other forms of nonviolent action or inaction, like the withdrawal of economic power through a strike or uh, different forms of, of resistance um, that don't actually expose people to direct violence the way that protests and demonstrations do. And then the fourth point is, is this, as you mentioned, critical role of loyalty shifts within the pillars of support. So um, every opponent, whether it's a state, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a system, has different people on whose cooperation that system depends to stay in the status quo. So for example, if, if it is a tyrant that a movement is challenging, that tyrant is relying on security forces, uh, civilian bureaucrats, state media, cultural and religious authorities, uh, different members of society, uh, economic and business elites in order to stay in power and maintain the status quo. If it's a corporation, it's customers, managers, workers, 
shareholders, board members, and others that the corporation relies on to, to maintain the status quo. And so when people are engaging in civil resistance, what they're trying to do is pull those pillars away um, from their cooperation, either by imposing direct costs on them, as happened in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, or by sort of encouraging them to see that their future is better served or their own interests are better served uh, by cooperating with the movement as opposed to um, the regime. So the sort of concrete implications of this are different movements have won by making it too costly for economic and business elites to continue supporting a system or by making it too costly for security forces to continue suppressing a group of people or things along those lines. So basically the idea is that when movements get very large and when they use various different techniques of um, kind of sanctions and incentives for those that want to join the movement or stop cooperating with the system, they are often able to divide the opponent's pillars of loyalty. In the end, the opponent is, is trying to divide the movement as well. And whichever side does a better job of dividing and ruling is probably the one that's going to win. One of the things that has come out of your work is this number, this magic number uh, of 3.5 percent. That is that no resistance campaign has failed once they've achieved the active and sustained participation of roughly 3.5 percent of the population. How did you get that number? Yeah, so um, this actually came out of the data that um, we collected for why civil resistance works. I was at a workshop in the summer of 2013 with a number of activists who asked me how many people are actually required to participate for movements to succeed. And I didn't know the answer to that. And so I pulled up the data set and I looked at what data we had and found this sort of surprising trend that above the 3.5% threshold of national participation, none of the movements that we'd coded as, as um, failures or even limited successes. So they'd all succeeded above that threshold. So that became the subject of a talk that I gave in, in Boulder, Colorado in, in 2013. And I've since been trying to collect more data and fill out uh, missing data uh, that we had in, in that initial data set. And it turns out there might be a couple of cases in the post-2006 period that may have surpassed that threshold without succeeding yet. One is in Bahrain, which had a, an uprising related to the Arab Spring starting in 2011 and probably um, kind of dwindling by 2014. And that uprising appears to have had about six to six and a half percent of the population um, that Which rose huge. up. Yep. And uh, that said, it's a very small place. So this was maybe 100 to 150,000 people which is uh, proportionately very large in Bahrain, but is comparatively smaller than many of the other Arab uprisings. And then the other case is actually in Brunei, where in the 60s there was an uprising that I would code as a failure according to our strict criteria. But it is another kind of island nation monarchy with a very small population. So there were less than 100,000 people in Brunei at the time. So 4,000 people rising up um, is 4%. So, you know, those are two cases that are sort of outliers, but I'm still kind of working on the data to, to verify those, those uh, cases to see um, whether the, the numbers of participants cited there are accurate. In your data, are they outliers or are they leading indicators? I mean, something that really struck me about your numbers is that 
You show that about 70% of civil resistance campaigns succeeded during the 90s and only 30% succeeded between 2010 and 2016. Right. So it seems as some, and I believe this is part of the book you're working on, if I'm not wrong, but that there's some evidence that either regimes are becoming more effective at responding or movements are becoming less effective in how they're built, but, but something might be happening that is changing the underlying dynamics here. It could be. You know, the Brunei case is from the 60s. It was a case that was missing in the initial data set. Oh, got it. I misunderstood that. So, yeah. So that one, um, I'm I'm not sure what to say about it, except that it, it may just be not a very representative case, or it may be one that shows us that the, the initial figure was an underestimation, or it could just be a total outlier. With regard to the post-2006 era, though, you're right. I mean, after 2006, and particularly after 2010, we have seen this decline in the absolute success rates of nonviolent resistance. Um, Bahrain is one of those cases. But we've also seen a dramatic increase in the use of nonviolent resistance at the same time, which is a really interesting paradox. So more nonviolent campaigns set on in uh, the current decade than in any decade in since 1900 by a lot. <laughs> and at the same time, the absolute success rates have declined to about 33% at this point. But one thing I, I will say, though, is that um, the success rates for armed campaigns have also declined to less than 10%. So what's kind of interesting is that um, the absolute success rates have declined for all kinds of resistance in the current decade, but the relative success rates meaning the comparative success rate between nonviolent and violent resistance has actually increased. So nonviolent resistance is now three times more successful um, than armed resistance. If the success rate for both violent and nonviolent campaigns is going down quite a bit, what do you think is behind what seems like the regime's becoming more effective at turning back these challenges? Yeah, so I'll give you a really simplistic answer. <laughs> I think I, I really blame the internet for it all. Um, <laughs> you know, me too, just in general to almost anything. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think that um, digital technology has been a really double-edged sword here. On the one hand, in the mid-2000s, the rise of, of social media in particular and digital technology more generally did give an edge to people-powered movements where young activists had really figured out how to exploit this new tool to better coordinate and organize where they didn't have physical space to do so in a lot of autocratic and semi-authoritarian regimes. That technique was quickly kind of co-opted and integrated into uh, the repressive capacity of these regimes and, of course, um, the repressive capacity of democracies as well. So at this stage, digital technology is playing a really perverse role in continuing to um, provide platforms through which people can organize quick events where they mass huge numbers of people without any longer-term capacity for organizing with those people and also exposing all those people to government surveillance um, and a track record of dissidents um, without providing kind of longer-term capacity for organizing. So I, I actually think that it is mostly the reason why we've seen both the increase in the onset of these movements in this decade and the decline in their success rates. That's so interesting. I want to note that first, um, just as a point of caution for all of us in the media 
when new technology comes up and we see it used a couple times in a way that is interesting or exciting or intense and everybody gets very excited it's going to change everything and then it turns out um, it changes it all maybe in the opposite direction <laughs> a couple years later as people learn how to work with it. But if I understand what you're saying, then the internet is possibly changing these in two dimensions. One, the way it makes things easier, it also makes the connections between participants shallower. And then by making them more visible to states, it makes it easier for the state to come in and break and threaten the people within those nodes. So it's sort of working in, it's working against groups in both directions. I wouldn't necessarily call it shallow ties or shallow organizing, but definitely more event-oriented organizing. So it's sort of like getting people to the streets quickly in large numbers. That is something that the internet has really helped people do. But in terms of like, are these groups able to meet offline every day in the basement of a church to plan their movement, to develop a strategy, to struggle together, to agree on things, to overcome those disagreements and build unity, to sort of come up with a good three to five year way to struggle forward together. Um, That is less obvious um, from the sort of digital organizing perspective. So they can get large numbers of people, but then they can also um, expose larger numbers of people to direct risk, infiltration, surveillance, without necessarily uh, getting people organized into resilient community groups that can maneuver around that when it happens. What are the predictors of resilience that you find? Unfortunately, it's a bit of a an abstract answer, which is good organization. Uh, and I'm not an expert in community organizing. Marshall Gans at the Kennedy School has been uh, working in that field and, and thinking through these issues a lot longer than I have. But um, I think a lot of us who've been working on research on civil resistance have started to become much more interested in the lessons that uh, organizing has for um, civil resistance movements today. And the emphasis there is is building capacity for long-term community power and stamina and leverage. And that's something that is an art and it's um, less of a science, but uh, requires real political skill and leadership. And it doesn't necessarily require a single leader, but it requires leadership for sure. When you look at all the social movements going on today, and there are a lot of them happening. And here I mean both things like Chile and Lebanon and Hong Kong and Iran and Catalonia, but also you've talked with and and I believe advised folks in Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement, and I spoke with Wayne Xiong the other day from Direct Action Everywhere. What do you see as holding the most promise for genuine lasting change? I think there are a couple of things that that are really interesting about the movements of our time. The first is that they appear to be empowering youth action in politics in a way that I don't think has happened at least in my lifetime before now. That has a lot of hope inherent in it. Even research shows that youth-led movements and and student-led movements are much more likely to uh, be nonviolent and more likely to succeed. (laughs) So that is a really interesting and I think promising part of of today's movement landscape. The second thing is the role of women in uh, nonviolent mass movements. My colleague Zoe Marks and I are are working on a, a project that essentially tries to evaluate the extent to which women are participating in a lot of these mass movements that are in uh, the data. And 
what we know is that when women are kind of excluded from these movements, they're much less likely to succeed and they're uh, much more likely to end violently uh, one way or the other. One of the things that brings me a lot of hope is seeing that um, this kind of lesson is already present in a lot of these movements that we see around the world that are either women-led or um, have very high representation of women or, or gender equal kind of ideologies that are motivating and animating them. And then I think uh, another thing that I see as promising is just how much material is available now to people who are trying to organize and mobilize nonviolent action. One of my colleagues and mentors is a, is a man named James Lawson, who was really integral to the Nashville desegregation campaign during the civil rights movement. One time he and I were talking and he said, you know, I sometimes get jealous of, of all of you today because when we were trying to plan our lunch counter sit-in programs to desegregate Nashville, all we had was like Gandhi's autobiography and the Bible. <laughs> And he said, and, and you have training manuals, you have workshops, you have seminars, you have all of this research at your fingertips. You really have no excuse for, for messing this up. Um, I'm paraphrasing. He's much more uh, articulate than that. But that was the, the upshot. I think that it is true. Like We, we know a lot more about um, where these movements have existed. We know a lot more about the, the general factors that uh, help people to create change uh, where they live when they find their, their conditions intolerable than we did 100 years ago or 50 years ago. And it's up to us. And, and I think that we have the tools that we need uh, to try to see that through. You began in in all this as an academic. Um, you're still an academic, of course, and you were studying violent resistance and the nonviolent. And I assume it was in many ways a surprise for you to become somebody who's regularly consulted by by activist movements. But I'm curious, how has getting a much more personal view of them, talking to the people in them, hearing about the challenges they face, what has that taught you? How has it changed your perception of what is required here beyond what maybe the data would kind of show at that high macro level? Well, you know, I'll, I'll uh, return to my my colleague, James Lawson, who, um, among other things, is an ordained minister. He, he said to me um, one time when I was talking about the data and figures after the talk, he sort of pulled me aside and he said, you know, I think these data and figures are really powerful and really compelling, but you need to have a little faith in people. Like you need to talk about people and you need to talk about what is animating them and what their problems are and what they're capable of, and the great potential in the human imagination. And you need to, you know, kind of get real and, and talk to some people. <laughs> so, you know, every time I read a story about uh, somebody who's struggling using nonviolent resistance in uh, a place uh, where it would seemingly be impossible to do that, or anytime I um, have the opportunity to talk with or meet with somebody who has undergone a struggle in a sort of a seemingly impossible situation, I just get a lot of humility. Like there's a ton that we don't know about this. Um, nobody can see the future. Nobody has a crystal ball. There's no formula for this stuff. But it has created in me a much greater sense of sort of humility and awe of the the way that the, the human spirit shines through um, many of these patterns of resistance. It has made me think much more about kind of the ethics and the sort of ethical obligations of researchers, both who are 
engaged or don't see themselves engaged in kind of questions of our time. Um, the truth is, like, you never know when um, your research is going to be really important to people. And because of that, we have to think through a lot of our own kind of commitments and ethical obligations before we even get started. Um, and I think that uh, for me, um, when I first got started in the field of political science, I didn't on a daily basis think about the ethics of of doing research or, um, or or doing engaged scholarship. Today, I probably think about it every day, um, <laughs> as opposed to before. And I think that um, because of that, it, it's you know given me a much greater kind of respect for the types of complexities and and dilemmas that come up from this sort of thing. And and so I'm you know sort of continually engaged with colleagues on those questions as well now. Can you ground that for me a little bit more? When you say that you're more engaged with the ethical questions, like what ethical questions? Is it about who you study or who you advise or what what what, is, what has changed for you there? Yeah, I think one of the things is the question about how we can adequately communicate um, what we know and what we don't know um, when people take up our research as meaningful for their situation. So for example, um, the three and a half percent rule is a very appealing statistic for lots of people. Um, I would say that it is uh, a descriptive statistic based on a very clearly scoped data set <laughs> um, and that no one actually knows whether it applies outside the scope of that data set. And uh, I would say that it's a descriptive statistic instead of a prescriptive statistic, if that makes sense. For example, I don't know whether if somebody uses the 3.5% rule to try to organize a mass uprising with just 3.5% of the population, I don't know whether that movement will succeed, and I don't know whether it's going to apply in that context. So there's a lot of kind of nuance um, that goes into these conversations um, that you know, I see as I, having to take more responsibility for now that I know that it affects people. I think when Americans think about big nonviolent resistance movements, they, they think of the civil rights movement, they think of Gandhi, and then things begin to peter out pretty quickly. So given how many you've studied over the past 20, let's say 20 years, what do you think have been the most successful social movements? What What, what are the ones that you take inspiration from where you think people should know more about? So I think that there are a few um, that I would cite from the past 20 or so years. I mean, among the Arab uprisings, I think Tunisia is is really kind of an impressive example. It's easy to look at the wave of, of protests known as the Arab uprisings and think that they were a total disaster. I don't share that view and, and um, in general, but I also think that Tunisia is often lost um, in that narrative. I mean, Tunisia is such an unlikely case of a mass mobilization and overthrew an entrenched dictator there with no real certainty at the outset that that was going to be um, a successful case, um, but that in a way was a textbook case of mass mobilization with broad sectors of society, um, mobilized in a very kind of organized fashion, drawing on existing li organized labor and other groups, um, engaging in uh, a very high range of techniques beyond protests, including strikes, walkouts, all kinds of different methods. Um, the military and security forces split, and they're on the path to a successful kind of consolidation of a, a democratic form of government, um, even though they've had a lot of bumps along the way. Sudan, as I already mentioned, I think is an incredible case. Algeria is actually still kind of in progress right now. And, um, you know, it was a big deal, I think, for Algeria 
uh, to experience a, a mass nonviolent uprising, given their fairly recent history of, of a really horrific and bloody civil war. And the fact that they uh, were able to maintain nonviolent discipline and still are after the overthrow of Bouteflika and, and sort of the transitional moment, I think is, is really incredible. Armenia had its own Velvet Revolution in 2018, really interesting case. There are many different kind of color revolutions from the mid-2000s, I think, that stand out. Uh, Serbia was maybe the first of the uh, color revolutions, uh, the so-called bulldozer revolution that overthrew Milosevic in 2000. Before that, East Timor is a very interesting case where essentially a, a long-term nonviolent resistance that forged alliances with Indonesian students to create leverage to expel um, what was seen as a, a foreign occupation of Indonesian forces there and created uh, the opportunity for East Timor to achieve international support for its um, independence again. Um, and, you know, it's it's really important to to sort of note that in East Timor, um, the, the 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 annexation and occupation of that place had provoked an armed uprising, the consequences of which was horrific for um, for that place. I mean, a huge number of people were killed in the course of that. So the fact that that was then essentially suppressed and then a nonviolent uprising was able to essentially mobilize uh, where the, the armed uprising could not makes it a really important case. Nepal is another case where there was a kind of longstanding civil war um, that ended in the mid-2000s in part because a mass nonviolent resistance movement formed independently um, from um, the armed combatants and uh, ousted the dictatorship there, um, ushering in a period of kind of transition that has, again, been bumpy, but perhaps less bumpy than if the Civil War had continued apace. Um, so there are lots of uh, other cases from around the world, uh, but those are some of the ones that come to mind. Something there is that, that you mentioned is the incredible cost that joining one of these movements, both the violent version and the nonviolent version, can incur on the participants. And I'm curious if you have data uh, or there is data, what what leads people to decide to join these movements? And and I guess more to the point, is it a psychological profile? Is it a certain kind of person who joins these movements? Is that is that about who we are individually or who we are socially? What is predictive of who will come in versus who will not? I don't think there's a general consensus in the literature about personality type and joining these movements. I think uh, there is a little bit of research about affective experiences, meaning emotional experiences and the tendency to participate in a nonviolent uprising. James Jasper, I think, uh, just wrote a book called The Emotions of Protest. And I think the the main punchline there is that um, it's like some combination of hope and anger that essentially draws people in. In terms of, you know, the, the question of, of who remains in these movements over the long term, I think that that's, again, kind of the subject of a lot of different scholarship, and it's hard to sort of summarize the key takeaways, and given that they're still kind of open controversies, but I think one of them might be that it depends very much on social networks and organizational capacity. So, for example, if, if people uh, rise up and then there's a place for them to go to maintain their commitment and their participation, it's probably much easier for them to do so than if they sort of rise up and there's no obvious kind of organizational channel through which uh, they can maintain their participation. Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of intuitive sense. And I guess I'm also interested in what 
what are the dangers to these movements? I mean, let's say that you have something, it has gained some momentum, there are people coming. Um, it, what your work seems to me to say is that atomization and polarization are two, maybe not the, but two of the forces that are most difficult for building a successful social movement. And yet when I look at those two words on my um, question sheet here, like in the era of social media and what we're seeing certainly here in America, but it seems to me in a lot of countries, atomization and polarization seem like defining trends of our age. So is that something to be deeply worried about? I guess I don't yet know the full implications of that for many of these movements. Certainly one of the the big concerns would be that that movements aren't able to build bridges or draw in unusual suspects into their ranks because of such deep polarization and sort of demonization of the other that they they can't actually become broad-based. Like that's just like a structural factor that makes it impossible to do that because that then, you know, if they, they remain sort of small and and homogenous uh, in their participation, then that means they they can't do the other things. They can't necessarily innovate new techniques that appeal to a broader uh, community. They can't necessarily create shifts in the loyalty of the different pillars of support. Uh, et cetera. So I, I do think that that is a major challenge. But I also think that probably most movements in the data uh, that I've collected, at least, had this problem to one degree or another, because many of them were oppositional movements um, that were operating either in contexts where there was a colonial rule or a sort of minority rule of some kind, or they were trying to oppose an, an authoritarian regime, which had erstwhile had total control over the, the sort of flow of information. So, you know, I, I do think that while it is a challenge and perhaps even more of a, a an urgent challenge of our time, it's not a novel one in the sense that movements that were facing like massive state propaganda against them um, under kind of the Soviet regime or something um, still had to find a way to overcome these problems of like different information sources and, and find a way to sort of build alternative institutions that allowed them to uh, claim their own narrative that then began to sort of chip away at the certainty of, of this opponent's information base. Recognizing that what you've studied is primarily these big, as you put it, maximalist movements that are trying to achieve regime change or secession or the expulsion of a foreign uh, occupier, and that you have a pretty stringent definition of success, what have you learned um, that is maybe valuable to somebody who is not considering violent uh, violent action, right? They're just in their community. There's something they're upset about. There's something they want to change. Has this given you anything that you think is either actionable for you as a citizen or just uh, is helpful for somebody who is thinking about how to change something more locally that is not at the danger level of um, some of what you're talking about, like trying to overthrow the, the regime in Tunisia or in maybe even more to the point in China? but that is somebody who wants to do something that is, you know, difficult and that would be a meaningful change in their in their local space. Yeah, you know, I I think that that's most of what people are up to around the world and because of that it's it's actually really hard to to sort of catalog all of the instances in which people have have tried to change their um, local situation or or their local government or a policy or something like that. It's just kind of impossible to track that and, and compare it across contexts in a way that makes me able to give a really concrete answer to that question. But I will say I see it as fairly intuitive that the principles 
that lead movements to succeed at this sort of national level um, with maximalist claims would also more or less apply to smaller scale efforts. Um, so, you know, the larger the group is and the more diverse it is, the more it's able to pull pillars of support away from the status quo um, with either new ideas, new institutions, or um, increased costs to continuing the status quo. Um, the more it's able to innovate new techniques um, that, again, draw more people in while maintaining disruption. And uh, the more they're able to maintain resilience and stick to their plan with great staying power, the, the more likely they are to succeed. I mean, I can imagine those four criteria as being relevant, um, regardless of what a person or group is is trying to um, to do in their setting. Um, but like I said, it's much less likely that we can sort of estimate the probability of success um, if they follow those four uh, criteria. A related uh, question to that, which is also about movements that maybe are not trying to or are not going to reach the 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 criteria you have for success, but but can nevertheless be important is right now I see around me a lot of movements. What they're fundamentally doing is agenda setting. They're they're trying to change the way people talk about something or change what people talk about. And that might not lead to success in the near term, but it is a way of upending the political conversation such that maybe success becomes possible later on. Um, and you've written that that kind of agenda setting, elevating issues like inequality, race, and immigration, the forefront of public consciousness is among the most important functions social movements can serve. So do you think that there are different conditions that or different approaches that make that valuable? Or, you know, if you're trying to get people to think about climate change, is it the same approach as you would take to trying to change a regime? Or is just trying to change what people are prioritizing? Is that a different question that has different dynamics built into it? Yeah. So there was a, a scholar of social movements who's passed away, but his name was uh, Charles Tilley. And he uses this acronym called WUNC, W-U-N-C. And he says that these are the things that um, social movements need to set the agenda or change the conversation or anything. He said they need to display their worthiness, um, meaning that their cause is legitimate and um, speaks to a, an issue where they have kind of broad appeal and an obvious need. Um, unity, meaning they need to um, maintain some degree of internal cohesion. Numbers, which means they need to get more people on their side than they had when they started. And commitment, meaning that they need to see it through. Um, and so, you know, these aren't unlike uh, the four criteria that I uh, put out, but but Tilly is talking about these in a much broader sense than just maximalist campaigns. He's reflecting um these four criteria and based on sort of his lifetime's work, uh, looking at uh, social movements across the world in basically every context uh, from the 18th century on. I think it's probably a good place to, to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you would recommend to the audience that you've read and that you think others should check out? Okay. So off the top of my head, I read a few this year that I would definitely recommend. Um, the first is Jill Lepore's book, These Truths, which I thought was incredible work, both because of how much material she amasses and the clear through line she's able to, um, to make of it uh, about American history. Um, another one is is Mark Kurlansky's book that is an oldie but a goodie, published in 2006, I think, called Nonviolence. A History of a Dangerous Idea. I think he does an incredible job of documenting and responding to critiques about nonviolence from several thousand years ago to, to today. 
And then let's see, the third book, I think I would recommend Kiaga Yamada Taylor's book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Uh, it was published, I think, in 2016. It's an incredible um, take on this question of why Black Lives Matter had to form under the presidency of the first Black president in the United States. And uh, it's a, a jarring, damning, and totally compelling uh, story. So I, I recommend people check that out. Erica Chenoweth, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Erica Chenoweth for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Rishi Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Uh, as always, you can email me with feedback or guest suggestions at Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. And the Ezra Klein Show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production. 